Hey guys, welcome to the Next Level Agents Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Kaufman, and along with my business partner and co-host, Fred Weaver, we bring to you our podcast all about getting to the next level. Sometimes we talk to real estate agents, sometimes brokers, sometimes people just in and around our space, and sometimes just entrepreneurs in general. But our point here is to talk to the brightest and the best and to pull gold nuggets out of them and bring them to you so that way you can take little actionable pieces of advice, sometimes big actionable pieces of advice and make your business even better and help you get to the next level. Do me a favor, if you haven't already, go over to ratethispodcast.com, ratethispodcast.com forward slash NLA, stands for Next Level Agents, and please leave us a five-star review if you have not already. All right, without further ado, welcome to today's episode. Yeah. All right. So what is kicking, this? We're, we are kicking off this podcast, but you, is this your first podcast? Is this, uh, is this, is this your first time um, using, using Zoom? Yeah. What's with the Zoom, dude? What do you, by the way, for those of you who don't know, today's guest is a returning guest, Dustin Brome. Otherwise, I just call him Massive Agent. I don't use <laughs> his first name anymore. But tell me, please tell me in all the ways I'm wrong about Zoom. Uh, first of all, I use Zoom for years when you're doing my show. Totally. <laughs> four years into it, I was still a rookie, but Zoom's okay, but it's, there's so many more glitches that can happen. If your guest has guest or you has shitty internet, the audio is not that great. And the video quality is certainly not that great. So something like Riverside functions the same way as Zoom, but it can record 4k and it records each person locally. The if, video, the, it does the video locally, not just the audio. Correct. Correct. So it will like downscale the video as we're looking at it, but the finished product, what's actually recorded is if you're using a 4k camera, it's recording in, in 4k, just like I am. Interesting. So, so if I, you're using video from a podcast, Riverside is infinitely better than zoom as far as quality goes. So I, I used Riverside as a guest on somebody else's and I wasn't impressed. I was like, I don't understand how this is any better. It's, it's the quality of the video. And, and there's some AI stuff in the background, so you can instantly clip your show and stuff like that. But it's mainly just a quality, video quality thing. Was that Riverside.fm or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I've been using that for a couple of years, I think. Yeah, love it. All right. But Maybe I'll try it. You're smarter than I am about that. Zoom is better than nothing, it but it, it certainly gives you better quality clips for video. Oh. Okay. Fair enough. Consider me schooled educated yeah <laughs> love it what's going on oh man i'm fasting again i'm, I'm doing a 96 hour fast fuck you just went straight into the long ones huh yeah i started with a 72 hour but three weeks ago or something yeah and then my wife and i are doing it she actually started about a day before i did yeah and so we're like i did 72 last time i could have kept going so let's keep going. I'll do 96, four days. I just, I like it. it. It's so convenient. Where are you at right now? How many hours in are you? I think 40. Yeah. If I'm 40 hours in. Okay. But it, I was, I was telling my wife last night, I was like, I was coming back from the gym and because I go in the afternoons because I'm weird. And normally I'd come back and I'd have to spend half an hour or so making food and then eating it. But I'm like, like crap, I have all this extra time. This is amazing. So we just played with the kids. It's, it is easy. Makes it easy. You know what? It makes traveling easy. Oh, I bet. 
because you're just like, no, I'm not going to look for the the good, the best of the bad options here in this airport. I'm actually mm-hmm. staining. Yes. It just makes it easier. And, or it's just, or I don't have to think about what I'm doing today. Like I'm just, cause I'm actually not eating. I don't, I don't have to make that decision. Makes the lunchtime decision easy. Makes the traveling decision easy. Stuff like that. So yeah, totally. Is that why you wear black shirts all the time? It's just easy. Yeah. Let's face it, dude. I think yeah. it's well-documented. I have only a limited amount of brain power. And if I wasted it on things like what color shirt should I wear today? My wife has a whole color wheel. <laughs> so she checks the color wheel of a sea of these seasons. Like it's this whole, yes. thing. and I was like, I couldn't even imagine doing that. I was like, my color is black. It's always black. Yeah. It can get crazy. Yeah. I, I usually just wear a black shirt, backwards hat. I pretty much wear the same stuff. Yeah. Steve it, Jobs made that okay. Yeah. Thank goodness. Him and I re- I don't know if this is true, but I almost said Mark Wahlberg, but I meant to say Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, he always wears like the gray t-shirt. Like it's just like a, just like a t-shirt. It's except it's gray. So I read something this week that was like some fashion designer and it's like a $400 t-shirt. I was like, okay, he's not just wearing a t-shirt. Fuck that guy. Yeah. If you're going to wear a t-shirt, you got to wear a $400. How do you even spend $400 on a t-shirt? That's what I want to know. No, I don't know. Maybe the cut of it is so much better, but like dude built t-shirts, B-Y-L-T. Yeah. Those are great. There's a lot of good t-shirts or just shirt companies that you can get for way less than 400 bucks. I could tell you that. Oh yeah. Yeah. But 400 bucks to him is probably a penny or something. Yeah, that's true. It just still seems like such a waste to me, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to each their own. Yeah. So what's, what's going on in your world? Did I see, I saw you launch something, Matt re- referral community. Yeah. 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 So yeah. The massive agent referral network. I'm, yeah. it's, I'm pretty excited about it. It's Dude, ever since I got into real estate, like I've loved the concept of referral networks, but there's just so many shitty ones. And if you ask why are they shitty, it's not the idea, it's the people in them, right? It's either you have too many people all clamoring wackos whenever a referral comes to their area. And look, it's better than nothing. Like the EXP referral network is awesome because it's like a bonus, but you have more than one person in each area. So a referral comes in and it's just like everyone piles on. It, it's still good. It's still a great value add. But what if you could have one great agent who's actually producing, who's actually capable of bringing referrals to the group and that's who's representing each market and there's never any competition? I'm like, that's for me. I've always wanted to do something like that. So we just launched it. So you have to qualify to represent an area and be collaborative. I want to weed out agents that are just like, yeah, I'll, I'll represent Phoenix and they don't even sell houses and have no ability to even bring referrals to anybody else. Those that's not who's in our group. Did I see that? I thought I saw you had some of the qualifications were like, you got to, do they have to be in production? Like personally selling? Yes. Uh, or their team, right? It, I prefer that it's a person who's actively living in the market, actively personally producing in the market. I, the spirit of the thing, I want everyone there, everyone who's made it in and who's representing Columbus, Ohio or Cody, Wyoming or Tampa, Florida to 
be a great agent. So if someone refers them a deal that they can be confident, the client's going to be well taken care of. They're not going to be apologizing to their client for referring a bad agent. Want to avoid that, which is super common in, in most other groups. Totally. Yeah. But the spirit of it is, Hey, I don't want a bunch of takers because if everyone's there to just receive referrals, there will be none. Fact. Turns out you actually, you got to, you got to do both sides of that. Yes. Yes. I found that to be, found that to be true. So, but yeah, that's going on. Excited for 2024 for agents. Anything specific that you're excited about? What stands out to you? Yeah. It, so it's all fresh on my mind because I just recorded my five predictions for 2024 yesterday for, for the podcast. And I think it's out on YouTube today. Yeah. But 2023 was rough for a lot of people, even teams like, like yours, you're still selling houses, but probably less than the year before, right? Almost without exception is everybody down. Almost yeah. without exception. It's something. So I heard a stat the other day in October was the lowest number of pending transactions since October of 2001, something uh, like, yeah, 20 something years uh, or 2000, maybe it was, maybe it's a different year. No, nonetheless, 20 plus years ago. And then it's actually, I don't, it's basically just gotten worse since. So we, we literally may be at this point in history right now where there's the lowest number of pendings ever in the history of modern real estate. Yes. And what's so cool, what I'm so excited about is agents that have survived that, yeah. that are still around, even if you've taken a big pay cut, like most agents have, and you're frustrated, your, your, what the hell's it called? Your funnel, your data, your, your pipeline, that's your pipeline is drier than usual. You're still here. And so I think 2024 just offers so much hope. There's going to, the Fed just like five minutes ago said they're not cutting rates today, but they're going to cut rates three times uh, in 2024. Just signaling that is going to get a bunch of buyers off the fence in anticipation of it. At least the smart buyers are going to get off the fence now versus wait. And hopefully some sellers as well. I think that's awesome. And for agents who are still around, you have fewer competitors than you did a year ago. Yeah. It sucks that people couldn't survive and make it, but not everyone's meant to to do everything, right? Not everyone's meant to be a successful agent. Not everyone should be. So you have fewer competitors than you did a year ago. That's great. Yeah. So you have business will be going up. There will be more sales, rates coming down. You'll have more opportunities with more clients and fewer competitors. That's awesome. And then with AI and everything happening and all these innovations happening so fast, productivity is speeding up. Your ability to get more done in less time and for less money is just increasing every single day. So it, it's just an exciting time, man. I agree. I, you mentioned people leaving the business. I'm curious. So you and I are recording this. What is it? Today's December 13th. Probably have this out in a week or two. It's going to be right around renewal time. I'm curious how many people mm. aren't renewing. For sure. You mentioned it, it sucks for those people. And yeah, had they done what they were supposed to do, then they probably wouldn't be getting out of the business. I feel bad for the individual. I don't feel bad for, but I also don't feel bad at the same time. If you're not doing what you're supposed to do, 
if you're not doing the right activities every day, like, yeah, I don't feel as bad for you. Like very few people fail out of this industry because of bad luck. Most mm-hmm. of them fail out because of like bad habits. Yeah. And, most. Yeah. Most. Not, not all. I think oh. the, the thing that I'd add to that, and I'm curious what your take on this is. Uh, yes. The majority of those who left the industry, they quote unquote, tried everything. They freaking didn't. They didn't try everything. They were hesitant to do A, B, C, and D. But there's agents that I know that I, I really have a lot of respect for that they're, they just weren't the right people. They were doing all the activities. They were doing all the work. They just weren't the right person yet. Meaning they were like super insecure, super shy, like really low energy on camera. Like they were doing all the videos. They were doing all the posts. They were doing all the, the phone calls, but they they just didn't have it. And there's a component of that that you could do all the activities. You could make all your phone calls. You could do all, all the videos, social media, do everything every coach on the planet tells you to do. But if you still believe that you suck, if you still believe that you don't deserve it, if you still believe you, uh, if you're not confident in your ability to serve someone, none of it's going to work. And so you have to be the right person or grow into the right person in addition to the work, right? You've probably seen agents like that. Yeah, I have most, what I find though, I, it's rare that I ever find someone that actually did everything. Yeah. Yeah. And still failed. Like, I agree. I agree. It's I, not I like it's 20% of them. No, yeah. it's, it's like single digits. Yeah. Low yeah. single digits. Yeah. And it might be less than 1%. Like it might be, it's such a, nonetheless, it's such a small, this isn't rocket science. What we do. It's not, right. it, it's really, it's a, it's that saying that gets overused. It's simple, not easy, but gets overused because it's true. Like it, mm-hmm. you just, you got to do the work. Like at the end of the day, you got to do the work. And it is hard to do the work though. If to your point, you're not the right person. Like you're not actually showing up as the person who believes in it because it's just hard to pick up the phone again tomorrow. It's hard to press, press record again tomorrow. Uh, all those things. If you're just not, if you don't believe in it and then Unfortunately, like everything else, momentum works in both ways or both directions. So if mm-hmm. you're not feeling good about it, you start to let it go. The momentum goes the other way. It's bad habits. It's, it's, it's all it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially with diet and exercise. Like that's such an easy analogy because if you've been so good with your nutrition and then all of a sudden in a moment of weakness, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to have this pizza. It's so much easier to just say well, the rest of the day is screwed. So I'll just eat crap the rest of the day. And so much easier to do the same tomorrow and and so on. It, it, you're right, man. It's the same thing. There's so much discipline required to be successful in general. Like it, it's a, I'm learning more and more that success, not just in real estate, but in any industry, it's discipline and confidence. Yeah. And confidence usually just comes from doing something. It, yeah. It comes from having the discipline, right? Yeah, which takes a little bit of discipline to at least get started. I do believe you can make something like there could be something that for you takes discipline. And for me is actually just a habit and vice versa for me is discipline for you is actually just a habit. Like I'm venturing to guess going to the gym for you is actually not discipline. It's your habit. You enjoy yeah. it. You, if I said, Hey, Dustin, you're staying home today. You're not going, or you're not going next week. Give you a thousand bucks every day. You don't go whatever you, you'd be like, that's fucking weird. I don't actually like this. Like I've been you, trying to figure out ways to to get the work done anyways. 
You'd say push you over and try to bench press you or something. Yeah. Or you'd be doing push-ups in your house and pull-ups or whatever. Like you'd get the work yeah. done because I think it's that at that point it's your habit. Whereas like I might go, Fair. well, this is actually, I've got to use my discipline. And then you use your discipline to build a habit, right? That yes. hopefully benefits you like going to the gym or calling your sphere of influence, shit like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I I also think that, so let me, let me back up. I'm an ideas guy. Like I get so many freaking ideas all the time and it's actually, it's good, but there's also a real danger to it. And yeah. the danger is in the lack of focus and, and in constantly like thinking you've got to do one of 47 different things every single day. Uh, and I, with that said, like I, I understand that mentality. And when I look back at when I was really struggling for the first four or five years of my career, it's because I wasn't hyper-focused on any one thing. I was always looking for the next thing. Oh, so-and-so does that. Let's try that mailer campaign. Oh, Facebook ads. Let's do that. Oh, I need to blog too. Okay. And so I was constantly bouncing around. And so th there's a good thing happening. There's infinite different ways you could attract clients. There's a million different ways. But the downside is if you don't have the discipline to stay focused and pick one or two, maybe three at most, and just dive deep and do it every single fucking day, you're not doing anything long enough to see success. And so then you're like, nothing works. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. You've got to, you have to It's try to tell newer agents like, yeah, go ahead and try all the things, try them and then see which two or three you're comfortable with doing at nauseum. Because if you just keep trying everything, like you're going to get nowhere, you're going to have such, you have such scattered results, if any at all, if you're just going to like do a little bit of everything. Whereas if you go, cool, I'm an open house guy and I work my sphere and whatever, and that's where I spend my time. Then you're going to have a lot of success. If you just do those two, two things over and over again, versus this month, you're trying that next month, you're in your cold calling next month after that you're you're doing internet leads or what you just have to pick your lanes and stay there exactly it, and it doesn't take 47 different lanes i believe every agent should do something something to actively touch the people that already know them right whether that's texting commenting on their social media phone calls like door knocking something to touch the people that you already know and who already know you but then also do something every day to create leverage to be seen by people who know you and who don't yet while you're doing those other activities, such as content on social media, right? If you do both every day and you just figure out like what that looks like for you, you give it a few months, six months, like nine months sometimes for the agents that struggle the most, it's guaranteed to work for 99.99% of people. It really is. It it's the hard part is like actually just doing it consistently yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. So what do you train your agents on your team? Like you get a new agent come to you and they're like, Hey, I don't know if you even uh, hire brand new agents, but let's say you do, what would you tell them to do from day one through day 30? So for a long time, we've had a really detailed training program, like, Log into an LMS, get going, like everything from what's an LMS? Like a CRM? Yeah, no, like a learning management system, like Trainual. Oh, okay. Oh, got it. Yeah. Like that, right. So 
you log in, like just like if you bought someone's online course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you log in, uh, and it really takes you through some foundational stuff. So, in my world, the first thing I really want to teach people, besides some just like basic things about the business, is how to consult with a buyer, like literally what to do when you meet the buyer. And the reason why we start there is because then you'll feel more confident in the reason why you should be meeting with a buyer after I teach you how to call the buyer. Brilliant. And so we always, that's been the foundation of all of our training for probably at least eight or nine years, if not longer, is that first you, you have to nail the buyer consultation part. And then it's cool. There's some men, then maybe there's some training around navigating the CRM and then about lead. Okay, cool. Now here's some lead. Here's how you would call these type of leads. It's that's the other thing too, is here's the different types of leads. Here's the different types of approaches. So we want to give them a, like a smattering of here's all these different ways you can go get business. It all comes back to on the buy side, this buyer consultation on the sell side, the seller's consultation. Yeah. I, I actually really want those to be taught and learned first because it's easier to anchor to that and know why you're actually having the conversations you're having. Like, what is the point? Like the point of a calling a new lead, no matter how you get it, isn't necessarily to sell the house. It's to set an, it's to, it's to get an appointment with that person to decide if you're going to work together. So we, we've always started there, but I think to your, to the broader question that you asked is, yeah, here's some different things you should try. And I, like you, I believe like sphere or the people you already know, like that has to be part of it. Like in my mind, I know, I do know people that are successful that don't work their sphere, but they are such outliers that I don't want to teach other people to do that. Teach everyone. Part of it is you have to have a sphere. And then the next part is now we figure out which way you're going to go get people that you don't know yet and turn them into people you do know. Yes. And uh, it's got to start there. There's so much wisdom in that. So I, I love that you begin with the end in mind with your training, right? Like you, you teach them the buyer consultation before they start contacting buyers. And I know that this is exactly why you did it. It's if they're on the phone talking to buyers and they're trying to get an appointment, but then they're successful and then, and you have a buyer like, okay, I'm ready to go. What's next? And you're like, I have no idea what's next. Yeah. If you don't know what's next, if you don't know, if you don't understand what happens next, you have that in the back of your mind and it's just fucking with you the whole time, right? It's a, uh, it's just killing your confidence. It's just, it's just creating this fear that it's almost making you fearful of getting a, getting the positive result. Yeah. As opposed to like, when you teach them the consultation, which the consultation is just teaching the client about what to expect, then it's, then there's some confidence. And cause they're like, they're already telling them, here's what happens next. Like they, they're telling themselves what they're doing next. Yes. So it's really easy. Get them in, have the consultation, then literally just do what you told them you were going to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It does work. It does, it does kind of work that way. Something that I did early on because I struggled with confidence for a long time and confidence as far as that I knew what I, that I felt I knew what I was doing, that if I got a client that I'd actually be able to take care of them and do the job and help them buy a house, sell a house, whatever. And to help build that confidence, one of my worries was like, what if they ask me, uh, 
like a stat? What if they asked me about this? Like, I remember my first year, I'm like, what if they asked me the absorption rate of this neighborhood? And I don't know. Spoiler alert. I never know. But I studied some stats to have some general idea of first off what the hell they, it meant. And then what they're really asking, they don't really give a shit about the absorption rate. That's not really even, what they're asking. They don't even know that, by the way, you could use absorption rate very well in your consultations, but they don't know what the absorption rate yeah, is. They, exactly. They don't know. No one's ever asked me that. Literally, no. I've been on lots of appointments. I've probably taken, I don't know, thousand listings, maybe 50, maybe 1200. Nobody's ever, nobody has ever once asked me the absorption rate. Now they've asked me questions that the answer might've actually been the, what is the absorption rate? They never phrased it that way. They exactly. That's not what, what they're asking. Yeah. They want to know what's going on in the market. They yeah. want to know what the chances are. Yeah. How fast about. is this thing going to sell is basically what they're asking. Yep. Yeah. But when I, so I would, I would think that I was going to be asked these questions because I remember taking a CE class about like how to use the MLS for market stats. So I'm like, oh shit, I don't know any of this. I need to know this. If, if I'm going to feel like such an ass if I get asked what the absorption rate is. And so I did some studying and what that gave me was the confidence that if I was asked those questions, I would know how to respond. I would have a, I would have an intelligent response for it. And even though I also never got asked about absorption rate, but I didn't really get asked much of, like people are saying, how long do you think it's going to take to sell? That's the question, right? And when I had an intelligent response, I came to every conversation with so much more confidence. Yeah. So just diving into the nerdy, the nerdy stats and shit that, that you don't really need to know. It helped me build confidence knowing that if I was asked by some super nerd, I would have an intelligent response. Yeah. I think that's a great point. The thing is, I was, so we had an event last week and I was interviewing Ben Kenny on stage and he was hmm. talking about what he calls the real estate success principles, which are like really basics. What does he know about that? Yeah. What does he know? I say this in front of my team every time I'm in front of him. So I'm just going to say it to you guys too, even though you probably all heard this, right? Real estate's like about knowing what to say. So learning scripts, like learning how to have conversations with people, having enough people to say it to, that's like leads. And then saying it enough times, that's like actually taking the, like doing the activities. At the end of the day, it's, it's these three things. That's all it is. And what you were talking about there with the, the stats, like I would put that under scripts, right? That's about knowing. Yes. What that's just having, that's knowing one of the things that come up in the conversation. And at the end of the day, real estate really can be boiled down to those three principles. You just got to know what to say. You got enough people to say it to you. Then you actually got to say it enough times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. If you it, solve those three problems, you don't have any problems. The only problem you have then is you might need to hire people. That's, that's the right. only problem you have if you solve those three problems. Oh, that's a great problem. Yeah. Yeah. It is a problem, but it's a good one. It means that you have enough business to, to support scaling upwards. Yeah. That's a good thing. Better than the opposite problem. That's for it, sure. Exactly. Exactly. And something you said earlier too, about the importance of touching your sphere of influence. When I really started to get traction as an agent, it was through content marketing. And so I was still a little bit immature. It, like it, it was a new concept to me. 
And so I went so far to one side where I'm just like, Hey, agents, you just need to be doing content. That's it. And, you know, I've evolved in my understanding of how it all works. And, and first off content helps to reach your sphere of influence because they're the ones that see it a, a lot of times, but why can't you do both? Like when you do both, it just, it's not one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals 10, right? When you're personally reaching out to and interacting with the people who already know you, which are the low hanging fruit. I didn't get this for a while. I did, like, I'm like, Hey, content marketing works and I don't have to cold call strangers. So that's awesome. Yeah. You still don't have to cold call strangers out of the blue. Like that's one strategy and it obviously works, but start with the people that already know who you are. They're the most likely to hire you. You have less work to get them to the point where they find you credible, likable, hireable, right? They may already think those things about you. So start with those people, but you've got to individually have an interaction with them Yeah, and you do that plus creating content that those same people see. And they see you over and over in all these different places and it just happens so much faster. So I, I think the one-two punch is just, it's so powerful. The individual personal reach out with the people who already know you plus content creation, it's not one plus one equals two. It's more than that. Yeah, I agree. And to your point, I see that all the time. Say somebody who is like into cold calls, like they would never do, it's the only way to go. Like, can't just create content and have people call you. And then people who create content are like, Oh, I'm never, I don't want to call anybody. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, actually, if you both, it's a lot like politics. Maybe if we just went to the center of the row yes, and, yes. and understood like what the value is, like you might real, you might actually find that to your point, one plus one is more than two here. Yeah. You have to be able to will it. You got to be willing to go. It's not just all this way or all that way. And unfortunately, just like with politics, most of our friends in real estate tend to go, it's all this way. And whatever that fill in the blank with the thing that they've been able to use to be successful in real estate. Like for me, it was internet leads and it was referrals. That's what I was good at. But I was also smart enough to know, yeah, dude, my buddy over here that gets on the phone every day and calls, cancel expires, that guy's rushing it. Uh, I don't want to do that, but I know that it works because he proves it to me every day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with a, a cold calling agent the other day. And I just gave him some perspective that they weren't considering because I think there's so many, this is not just agents, this is humans in general, but good is the enemy of great. Yeah. They cold call strangers. Like, and I'm talking about true cold calling where you have a script and you're calling somebody who has no idea who the hell you are. They're not expecting your call and you're trying to convince them of meeting with you or, or do something right. Like yep. true cold calling. You see all these videos of, the, the agents with their headsets in on YouTube doing the shit. And that's great. And yes, it works. It works. And so they think it works. Why would I do anything else? So I'm like, what if you also though, took an hour a day or less and created content? So then when you called those strangers, they knew your name from somewhere. They act to, you aren't actually a stranger to them because they'd seen you in their newsfeed once or twice or however many times. And when I phrase it that way, they're like, oh crap, that would help my cold calling that I'm so married to work better. And then vice versa, right? Cold calling in general will make your content perform better as well because they've seen you before. So very similar setup, a buddy of mine in Kentucky, in Lexington, 
probably number one team in all of Lexington, regardless of brands. He happens to be DXP with us. Good buddy of mine. We had, so we, he came on our zoom a couple of weeks ago to our mastermind to share what he's been doing on his listing side, what he found. So he's always been a calling, like a cold calling team. Like they've always made phone calls, both internet leads as well as actual like outbound cold calls. They focused heavily the last 18 months on their Google reviews, their Google profile. And it's made everything they do easier. Yes, they got Google leads. They got the Google local service ads. Like they got those leads too. But what he found is also when they made phone calls, it was easier. When they got leads from this source over here, it made it easier. So yes, you could actually position yourself with content. Maybe, fuck, I don't know. Just be crazy. What if you had content, a presence on Google and you made phone calls. And so you're talking crazy. Yeah. So then you called someone and they're like, they already know who you are. So you're so much more well-received than like the other 87 calls they got from the bold agents this week. What if you did that? Yeah. Like that might just be a formula for success. You might've stumbled onto something there, Kev. I, you know what? If this podcasting thing doesn't work out, I might. So <laughs> I don't know. The Zoom podcasts are, are pretty hot deals. So I am crushing it with my 1998 style podcast. <laughs> Look, I, and I talk shit. Equipment or software should never hold people back from starting a podcast or doing a thing. Like there's plenty of plenty of creators that make multiple millions per month per month that just do shit with their iPhones. I was going to say their whole equipment is just their phone. Yeah. Just your phone, Josh Rogers. He's an EXP agent down in, I think he's in Jacksonville, Florida. He's in Florida somewhere, but he's built this giant machine. I think they did 60 million in sales last year, just from YouTube leads. And he was doing a training for our group the other day. And we were like, what do you use equipment wise? He grabs his iPhone. Yeah. I had, All on I, his iPhone. I had a buddy who's actually funny because he was a cold caller and he's, completely shifted his business to YouTube, like crushes it on YouTube. And when he was at our event, he made plenty of YouTube videos on his iPhone. And I was like, Mm -hmm. even I was super like, he's crushing it with YouTube. And I turns out like that was his camera. I was like, yeah, shit. Yeah. I, for the longest time, I think I, so I think I've had the podcast now last month was five years. Nice. And for the first three full years, I my equipment was my computer, my Zoom account, and my Apple Air, earbuds like you're wearing right now. That yeah. was my microphone and my headphone. That was it. Like I didn't have a, I didn't own this. What is this? A road? I think, yeah, it's a road mic. I didn't have this fancy microphone until three years in. I was like, oh, I'm like 300 episodes in. I or maybe 200 episodes, whatever it was. I was like, maybe I should buy a microphone now. So I did. You know, I yeah. love that. Yeah. But I love that. Just take action. It's it, dude. It's so true. My, my podcast, I started January, 2018. So it's been almost six years. <clears throat> and um, dude. I know and we're about to hit a million downloads. Like we're 10,000 downloads away. Seriously. Yeah. That's awesome, bro. Yeah. 10,000 from a million. It's wild. But I started with a a ninety dollar Blue Yeti mic, so I actually had a mic. But most almost, podcasters will say that's not really a great mic. 
I almost bought it. Yeah. Yeah. It worked fine for me. And then I would record into ScreenFlow, which is just a video editing software that literally no podcasters recommend you use, but I used it because I knew how to. And then I just, it's more important that you have episodes that people want to listen to, that you have something worth listening to. And you and I both know people that have built these giant video studios, these big podcast studios. They have $500 mics, the Rodecaster Pro, which by the way, I've still never done an in-person podcast. I don't know how to do that. I have no idea how to do that. I don't have the equipment for it. I just have the USB mic. But when people want to show up in person, I'm always like, okay, we can do it. That's why we do have the setup now. But so I bought that fancy camera you told me to buy and I'm not real sure I know how to use it. I still, I just put my computer over there. That's all I do. And then I end up just doing, I'm like, I really do this for the audio anyways. I should really figure out the video thing one day. One day. But again, you don't need fancy shit there. I know people that have spent like six to $10,000 on equipment and their podcast is garbage because it's just so fucking boring. And they, it's not about the quality. Like quality is important. You need to be clearly seen and clearly heard. But once you check those boxes, what you're talking about is the most important for sure. Like Russell Brunson's podcast, uh, was it called Marketing Secrets? I believe he records it driving to and from the office on his iPhone. You can hear cars revving in the background and like honks in traffic. Nobody cares that he's not in a professional studio with foam on the wall. Nobody cares. It's because what he's talking about is good shit. That's what matters. Same with video, podcasting, everything. So I, it really bugs me when people are letting a lack of fancy equipment stop them. Cause it's really just an excuse. You don't need any of that shit. hundred percent dude, million, a million downloads. That's awesome. It's crazy. Yeah. Thank you. It's crazy. I think I'll get there next year, maybe this time next year, depending, although I don't know. I feel like my downloads have tanked in the last 30 days for some reason. Oh, mine too. Dramatically. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, normally I'm getting like 25,000 downloads a month. We're hovering around 16 ish. Okay. So I think I'm closer normally to 17 to 20. And I, if I remember right, I logged in either yesterday or Monday and I was like, feels like I'm closer to six or 7,000. I'm like, what is going on? Ouch. Yeah. I I don't know what's going on. It's not like I, so in the past, I've noticed that if I, if I get behind and end up just publishing a lot of replays in a row, I'll see a fall off. And I'm like, yeah, I deserve that. Like I, cause I didn't actually record something new, but I've actually, in fact, because I got, I actually got so far ahead on my recordings. Cause we were, had this, we had this live event last week that I knew was be all encompassing of me. I, I've got, I had, I was like two and a half months in event. Like I, I was starting to feel bad from the guests cause I re- would record and then they wouldn't hear from me for eight weeks. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, Oh, by the way, it's going to publish this week. Here's your, here's the graphics, blah, blah, blah. Like I felt bad. I always feel bad because I'm like, they're wondering when is it going to come out or did you just trash my episode or whatever? Yep. Done that twice. Sometimes you have to. Dude. There's some people where I'm like, eh, I can't let people hear that. And two out of whatever, 400 or something now, two out of 500, however many it's been like, that's not bad. It's a lot of episodes. I'm, I'm, I only do one a week. I'm at 312. So 
I effectively do one a week, except for a while there, I started doing a second one a week because it was fun and I was enjoying it. Do you know Pat Hyben? He used to, he started real estate rock stars. So yeah. Yeah. He had the idea. He asked me to come on his show and do this extra segment where we just talked about the news. And so we did it and it worked for a while. And then he was like going to sell his podcast and stuff. I was like, dude, I'm not going to keep doing this with you so you can sell your podcast. Then I'm going to be stuck with someone else and whoever paid you the most. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. So I started just doing it on my show. And I was like, so they added a second one. And then I added, then I was like, I've always made video. I, for years, we'd made videos, like short videos, like two, three minute videos. I was like, and they're just like tips, like business tips. So I was like, I guess we could strip the audio and put that out. So then I was at three episodes a week. And then iBuyers were like a really big thing and education around it was. So I was like, I already got a bunch of content on iBuyers and I pay attention to them anyways. Make some content. So I so then I found myself literally producing like four episodes a week. Producing is a strong word. Releasing four episodes a week. Yes. And of course, Damn, man, that's a lot. dude, it was. And as you can imagine, like downloads took off. Like it mm -hmm. started like gaining momentum. And then fucking COVID happened. And I was like, all right. And then I was like, not in the so then it was like the iBuyer shit went away because they stopped buying. And I was like, I'm not going to keep talking about these companies if they're literally not buying anymore. So I just, that took away an episode or two a week. And then it was like, I think I just, the news one, I think I just get tired of, I feel, I think I might've felt bad because all I was doing was pissing people off by telling the truth about their company every yeah. week. And all I was doing was like scanning the headlines on housing wire and Inman and whatever, and just going, what are people talking about? And then just giving my take on it, which is actually fun to do. Until it's until it feels like you have to do it, then it's no longer fun. So I was like, so then I pulled that back, and then I was like, why am I doing this? So I was like, I'm just going back to once a week because I just enjoy. I, I do this for me, like I enjoy interviewing people and talking to people about stuff. So went back to one a week. So there was a good, I don't know, I bet there's a good six months six month run though where I was probably pushing three to four out a week, and yeah, that was a lot. Like it's a lot. Wish I had the desire and the focus to go do two or three episodes a week. I feel like that, that would be good. I just don't think, I think in order to do that, you got, so like my friend, uh buddy of mine, Brian Gubernick started a podcast this year and it's every day, but it's five to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I just, that format's not great for me. It's amazing for him. It's perfect for him. It's not the format that I want. So I'm like, there's no way I'm pushing out four or five 30 or 60 minute episodes a week. Like that's too much. Totally. Totally. Uh, I've toyed with the idea of a second episode a week or even like a premium subscriber deal. So either longer episodes available to, to subscribers or something is look, if I'm being honest, my podcast is a business. It, it, it's a straight up business. It's my brand. It's the pillar of all of it. And I'm always looking for ways to, to grow that, but also just to have a bigger, wider reach and impact within the industry. And so if there's going to be costs going up to do a second show, then I've got to figure out a way to, to make the money to cover them. that. So I've toyed with that. I don't know. And maybe even taking the recordings from the coaching calls that I do and make those available to 
premium members or something like that. There's all these options out there, but I don't know. I, but one a week I've just settled into for almost six years. Even if I don't feel like it, I fucking smack myself and make myself do it. And what's it, what I found, dude, sometimes the episode that like I'm about to delete or I'm about to throw in the trash, I'll post it and I get more comments than any that on that than almost anything before. Like it's really? usually the stuff that I think sucks ends up hitting, touching a nerve in a positive way. Like there was a message in it that certain people needed to hear. And I just, I get a lot more feedback from some of those episodes that I thought were shit. It's weird. That keeps me going. Like just publish everything. Interesting. Okay. So here's something I noticed at first. So I had a different perspective. So at first I was like, this is just a hack to grow. And I think it is, but then I got a different perspective on it, which I'll share with you in a minute, but I noticed, I'm going to say his name backwards. It's either Patrick David bed or Patrick bet David, but David, thank you. So he's got a, like, he's crushing the content game for sure. Like he is, oh, yeah. he might be second only to Hormozy at this point. Like he is, it feels like he is everywhere. One of the things I've noticed, I, I'm not like a regular listener of his podcast, but occasionally he'll have a guest where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go listen to that one. And I noticed everything is part one, part two, and they're released mm. on the same day. And sometimes it's part three or part four. So let's say he's got an hour. I think it's probably more like a two hour episode. Rogan does an episode. It's three hours long. Like yep. almost always it's two to three hours. So he just takes the same thing. I think what he's doing and he just cuts it into two or three episodes, but he releases them on the same day. And I was like, that's definitely just a hack. And it might that be. sounds weird to me. Like It is. It is weird. But so I was asking a buddy of mine who actually does like somewhat listen to his show regularly. He's, and I was like, dude, is this just a hack or what? He goes, no, think about it this way. He's, there are a lot of people that just prefer the shorter content and they don't have three hours to give an episode. This, it feels more manageable to, to take it. Like, oh, I can get through a 30 minute episode. Let's just say instead of a one, one hour episode, you've got two 30 minute episodes. And I was like, yep. all right, I could accept that answer. It's still a hack. Let me be clear. That's still a growth hack. Yeah. Downloads, which I thought I was like, that's probably pretty smart. But then I was like, okay, there's a different perspective on that too. I've always thought that was weird. Like I've heard people say that before that it's a two hour podcast. So I'm not it's like, then listen to as much as you want one day, then continue listening the next day. Who gives a shit? Like I've listened to a four hour Joe Rogan episode before, but I've also turned off a Rogan episode after five minutes. Same. If I didn't. So if it's good shit, I'll keep listening. I don't care how long it is. If I only have 30 minutes to listen, then I'll listen for 30 minutes and continue when I have more time. I've always thought that was weird. Same. I thought yeah. the same. Like I, I used to think that too. Rogan's is a great example because most of his are three hours. I'm like, yeah, I just don't, I might pick and choose. I just basically ch would cherry pick the guest. Then mm -hmm. same thing. Now I'm like, when I don't know the guest, I'll look at it. I'll read the description and go, oh, okay. That's top. I'll, I'm going to invest five or 10 minutes to see if this is something I want to get into. Rogan's a great example because he hits so many different topics. Like I actually have to figure out if I want to listen or not, but yeah. I never sit down and listen to all three hours at once. Very rarely. Yeah. Shit. I listened to a five hour podcast probably about this time last year. And 
I was like, this could have gone on longer and I would have been okay with it. But I remember looking at it was like, it's five hours. I'm not listening to this. Come on. So I just started it and I listened to it more than once. I'm also reminded of how important clipping the show is because especially with his show, most of his guests, I have no idea who they are. And so they could be talking about something that I very much would be interested to hear, but because he just titles his show, the name of the person, I don't know who the fuck that is. So then I'll see a random clip where they're talking about something I find interesting. And I was like, Oh, which episode is that? And then I'll, because of the clip on social and I know, Oh, that's a topic I want to hear. I will then go listen. Clipping. So the broke agent taught me this uh, a year or so ago. He put this into perspective for me. I used to not even record video with my podcast. I used Zoom, but I didn't even keep the video. We just kept the audio. Then I started to keep the video to do something with eventually. Then I started to take the video and just post the full episode and, and create some clips. But I still was thinking in my mind that the podcast is number one and the video is an afterthought and the clips are afterthoughts. But Eric, the broke agent was like, dude, you could post one 20 second clip that 40,000 people see. How many episodes would it take you to get 40,000 downloads? I'm like, good point. So now I've switched it in my mind. And if I was starting over as a podcaster, this is what I would do differently. I would create a show for the clips. I would create a show, a video show, and then take a podcast from it because those clips can get so much more exposure and reach than your show, but they both serve different audiences, right? But one can bring viewers and vice versa. That's a good point. Actually, actually that's a really good point. I think about, damn, that's a really good point. It, and it's such common sense too, but I never looked at it that way. I'm like, holy crap, you're right. The clips, and I've heard Gary Vee say this, he goes to speak at events, not for the money. He doesn't need an extra 150K or whatever he charges. He does it to get the social clips. It must be nice. Yeah. No, dude, that's a, God, that's a really good point. God, I suck at content. The I'm thinking about one of my favorite episodes, anything ever was Naval Ravikant on Joe Rogan. And I went and listened because I saw a clip. I saw a 20 second clip. So I went, that was interesting. And I was surprised at how far I had to scroll back to find the episode. And then I did, I was like, and I remember thinking, I was like, wait, do I want to listen to something that's two, two years old or a year old, whatever it was? Did I just get duped? And I'm like, no, I'm going to listen to it. And I did. And I sure enough became like favorite episode ever. And it went down a rabbit hole and got a lot, ended up getting a lot out of it. But yeah, so funny. Not. It's like not samples, only, right? But yeah. Yeah. That's so true. You go to Costco. The reason why Costco gives out so many samples is because then, you know, you like the shit and then you go buy it. How are you going to know you, you want to buy the thing if you never tried the thing? Long form and short form content, just they work so well together. It's like little samples of what your big, long podcast is. And you give people little clips and they're like, oh, I want to hear the rest of that. So then they go listen. Are you clipping it all yourself? No. Yes and no. So I use opus.pro, which is an AI tool that you just upload the video to and it clips it with captions and all that. It usually it does decent stuff. I usually have to edit the clip a little bit because I'm part of the BAM team. They, they do one to three different clips from my show every week. They'll have somebody actually listen and clip it. 
and they do a pretty damn good job of, you know, picking clips with hooks and all of that. I try not to post too many podcast clips because I don't, with social media, you don't want to do too much of any one thing. If, right. if it's all podcast clips, when you're talking to just real estate agents, the audience is not nearly as wide as like a Joe Rogan or a Patrick Bet David or yeah. whoever that there's tens of millions, t- tens and tens of millions of potential listeners. I still want to overdo it with the clips, but I make sure that I do them. I now, as I'm recording my show, I'm thinking of how I can ask a question or how I can say a certain thing for how it will sound and look in in the clip once it's done. It's just a, it's an adjustment of mindset. It's really smart. Byron Lazine taught me that. It taught me how if you need to, while you're going through a podcast, if it, even if it's live in person, you'll ask something. If, if you're thinking about, hey, this will be a clip, you could stop and pause and then ask a very specific question that would just be a great hook for the social media clip. Yeah. So I've phrased things differently now that I do the podcast for the clips. And it helps. Certainly takes practice though. Yeah. I could see your wheels spinning. Yeah, they're totally spinning. It's so it's just because I've had been having this conversation with a couple of friends. So I, I was on there's a sign and post company here locally. And they're not just here. I think they're also in Denver and maybe Las Vegas. And I know the owner, known the owner for years. And so he was like, Hey, I'm going to start a podcast. We'd be on it. So I was like, yeah. So I go down there to his, to his warehouse where he's got a, he's got a really cool setup. Like it's a great podcast studio. And we recorded and he posted a clip the other day. And so a couple of friends of mine were like, dude, that clip was money. Like, cause he's got the right angles for the cameras. Like he had, and it was same thing, dude. The question was a perfect hook for a clip. And so of course, like it did well, like hit. So that little video did well in context did well, but I think it was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like we should totally be thinking. Yeah. So anyways, this is a whole conversation I'm having. So me and a couple of guys here who we ended up, we, we get together and talk about business all the time. We're like, we should probably record this mm-hmm. about us just talking about these different things that we're dealing with in business and helping each other with and then and clip it. And so I'm actually good. I think Friday, we're going to go check out the guy's studio who just to see his setup and go, could we replicate this somewhere? Or could we just use his? Can't really like I'm sitting in right now in my, all I'm using my quote unquote studio is just the smallest office in my office building. That's got just enough room for my two microphones and recorder and some plugs and stuff like that. Like it's couldn't possibly set it up in here and have like multi-camera angles, but been thinking about it. It's a really good point though on the clips. So you just fed in something, a conversation I've been having and gave me a better perspective on it. So thanks. Yeah, of course it's helpful. So often we just get used to doing what we've been doing and it helps someone like from the outside. So my friend, Neil Mathweg says that you can't read the label from inside the bottle. You need someone on the outside to read it for you. Yeah. We all need that shit. That's so, true. Yeah. It's a really good point. What else is on your, anything else on your mind? Food. You want to share your other prediction. Food's on my mind. Cause I can't eat for another couple of days, but 
I've only, I told you, I've done 72 hours, I don't know, four or five times. And every time it was day two was the only hard part. Day one was easy. Day three was easy. Day two was a mother. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. I, I think that's how it was for me too. Day three on my first 72 hour fast was easy. Yeah, like totally. It, it really was. And it wasn't until like I started getting to the end and I started thinking about what I was going to eat that it got harder because I could have kept going, but I'd already screwed it up. Yeah. Okay. So 2020, I'm just looking at this list from what I talked about in my show, more drama. We can ex certainly expect more drama around NAR and lawsuits and all this crap. I, th I think it's a good thing. I, th I think it's a good thing for agents. And I think it's a good thing for consumers because more transparency will come from it. It's going to weed out a lot of jokers that just don't know how to defend their value proposition to a client. Look, ever, dude, ever since being a realtor was a thing, like you had to be able to articulate to a potential client why the fuck they should hire you. This okay. is not a new thing. It's just, it's becoming more important. And you may have a few more people questioning what you charge, questioning the structure of things, questioning your need at all. How is that different from last year or the year before that? It's really not. But that weeds out some agents. Dude, I think NAR is going to go below a million members, possibly this year in 2024, because you brought up renewals. Yeah. And... Yeah. Renewals are different. So in, in Utah, it's just, you renew 12 months after you started. So there's renewals that happen all year long. So here we renew our national dues January or December 31st. Huh? We do ours in July. We do, but then we do our local, our MLS dues in July. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, ours is just one, one payment that includes all of it. Yeah, I don't know why we have two, we, but for some reason we do. Probably so you feel like you're spending less. Probably. Seriously. Because ours is what, 900, 950 bucks now, including national, state, and local. Yeah, that would be it. That would be the difference. And it's a big chunk versus yeah. breaking it up into every six months. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so I, it's I probably smarter that they do it the way you guys do it. It's a good, but that, and that, by the way, that's a good prediction under a million. Cause you, you've already got some of the bigger brokerage houses going, yeah, we're not going to require it anymore. That so. will continue. And I keep chirping that I wish EXP would do the same thing. I think eventually there, everyone's going to do it is my hunch just because I think it's going to depend on how this lawsuit really shakes out. But if it shakes out bad or, or real bad, then I think it for sure every single brokerage is going to be like, yeah, you don't got to do it anymore. We're out. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the, the tough part is I think, I just, I think so much of it just hinges upon the outcomes of these trials. Like what, mm -hmm. what, what eventually happens after we get through appeals and the copycat lawsuits and all that stuff. And so I think there's still a lot to be done, but either way, I think that, yeah, NAR membership's going to decline. The question is, is how much? Yeah. And in that same vein, if it goes like there's fewer members, their costs and expenses are going through the freaking roof. They they have to increase dues, which is gonna piss people off even more and cause more pressure to decouple from NAR. 
So I don't know how NAR survives. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I don't know how they survive. That scares me because the we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? And, and the baby, the cute little baby, is they're lobbying. They're $80 million, $85 million a year that they put into lobbying for home ownership, property rights, tax advantages for property ownership and real estate investment, all that. That's great. Can we double that, please? And then just cut all the other bullshit? That's the part. This is what NAR, I, I believe, is screwed up is everybody's not everybody that wants to get rid of them. Mostly, I don't know what they do for me. Mm -hmm. Their problem, the NAR's problem is none of us know what you do for us. But what I do know is you lobby better than any, probably better than any other trade organization in the country. They're the biggest one. Yeah. And so it's, we should, I don't want to get rid of that. Don't want to get rid of The problem is that your average agent like doesn't even know that much less understand that. And because NAR can't answer the question, what do you do for me? People go, they have no interest in answering that apparently. No, they apparently have no interest in answering it. And so they're like, we're just important. <laughs> yes. yes. And and I don't, I'm with you. Like I actually, I want to continue to contribute because of the lobbying power. The other side, I don't I even, I'm not real sure what else it does. I'm, and I realize that's how I get my access to the MLS and all that stuff at this point. But if you didn't hold that over our heads, yeah, for sure. We wouldn't do that. So I don't yeah. know. We still need a lobbying organization. That's good for the benefit of our industry. That really is. But I think most people don't understand that because NAR's not ever done a good job of articulating that. No. And the word that I come up with is arrogance. So last week, I was interviewed by a New York Times reporter. Crazy. She found me on TikTok. I'm not even that active there, but she found me on TikTok, thought I was a thought leader in the industry, and we talked for 30 minutes. And it was all about NAR and what the industry thinks of NAR. Like, what's the sentiment of the industry? And I was telling her all the same stuff. And she knew it. Like, she knew NAR is the biggest trade organization. So there's a New York Times article coming out about NAR and how they're received in the industry. And I shared with her, like, the sentiment of most agents I talk to, based on Instagram polls I've done and stuff like that, that 97% think NAR is completely worthless and would cut them in a heartbeat if they could. Yep. And I, sh I shared with her, I'm like, I feel that same way. However, we need some organization for the profession, like some central thing, right? Like we need a government, but we don't need this giant overbloated government that pisses money away. Like we need a government to do a few things, but not all the other bullshit. Like NAR is like the government now. Are we still talking it's about like, NAR or are we talking about the U.S. government? Yes. It's the government of real estate. It's just gotten so damn overbloated with bullshit. And they're so arrogant to think that they don't even have to justify their existence anymore. And, and those were the words I used with this reporter. I was like, agents don't know why they're paying these dues. They feel like it's protection money to the mob. They, But they're getting no protection. Yeah. We're getting, we're losing lawsuits that shouldn't be lost for God's sakes. Like how the fuck do we lose a class action lawsuit that says we're, that there's this massive collusion to this conspiracy to keep commissions high when there isn't one? How the fuck does that happen? So uh, gross incompetence is how I agree, but I'm maybe I won't, 
You don't agree. Oh, th- this is good. Let's talk. Oh, no, I agree. I'm not going to put all of the onus on NAR, though, for that. Though no, the guilty. other brokerages, too. With yeah. They're guilty. but Because they, the people they put on the stand, how out of touch could you possibly be? Putting Gary Keller on the stand, putting the head of these fuddy daddies that have been in the business for 50 years. Like, yeah. it, I'm so glad you said that, not me. And the, here's the other thing I've heard. And I don't like, okay, so I'm not pretending to be an expert. I'm for sure armchairing it here. But one of the things I'll continue to hear now is that effectively didn't matter. The fix was in from the get-go with the jury selection. Like the jury, there was not one homeowner on the jury. How the hell does that happen? Like, so some of the sort of back back channel conversations I've overheard in the last few weeks is that actually doesn't matter how incompetent you guys showed up. You weren't, you were going to lose no matter what Hmm. because of that process. But also clearly the lawyers, the defensive team, they fumbled the ball, which I, and I've also heard, um, uh, trying to think how I can phrase this. I don't want to, I would like to not get in trouble. I would like, so I've heard, and I don't know this is true. I've not confirmed this. I cannot confirm nor deny that some of the, some of the companies that just settled early because they looked at their co-defendants and went like, oh, no, this is a losing back. I'm not doing this with you. That's a terrible. Makes strategy. sense. I'm out. Yeah. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a stretch to assume that's the case. It's mind boggling how no one from what I followed, I obviously was not there in the courtroom, but I read all the transcripts from Inman and, and from BAM, but how, when they're talking about scripts and it's like, no shit, we're trying to teach our people to be more successful and make more money. That does not equal a conspiracy to, yeah. to charge everyone the same high rates. Those are completely different things. And no... Nobody challenged that. Nobody differentiated the two. Yes, we as a trade organization want our people to be financially successful and to make more money. That's okay. Literally every other profession does it, as they should. There are restaurant trade organizations, and what do they teach their their members? How to be more profitable as restaurants. Yeah, That's what we do. That's what all these scripts and all this shit is about. It's not, you must charge this amount. It's, it's just wild. It's Same wild. Way. Same with chiropractors, same with go that like it goes on and on. And yeah. On. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Have you ever been told what you must charge a consumer in commission? Never once. Right. Like I understand a minimum that we must pay the brokerage, right? Like a few hundred bucks or whatever. It's never a minimum charge to the consumer. Exactly. A you charge whatever the hell you want. Yeah. It's a minimum charge to me because I am like, I'm an independent contractor and I'm actually paying them. But- yeah. Yeah. And you could choose to do a 0% listing and pay whatever your minimum is with the brokerage out of your pocket. That's your choice. 100%. I don't think any of this was brought up in this trial. Wild. wild. I am not the smartest person in real estate, but I am a thinker sometimes. And how are we having this conversation so freely because it's so obvious and it didn't get defended this way in this trial is mind boggling. So frustrating. To say the least. Yeah. 
obviously I think it could be, I'm not a doom and gloom guy, but I'm also like, not a, not going to bury my head in the sand guy either. So I do think that there could be like, there is a worst case scenario that that isn't good. I just think it's not likely. I think at the end of this all shakes out, however, whether that takes six months or six years, once it does like actually eventually all shake out, my hunch is things will be a little bit different, maybe even better, but definitely going to hurt some people. It's going to be harder for some. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. It's not. No, I, I think it's better for consumers because there's going to be more. Consumers will feel like they have more ownership in the process. They feel like they have more options, more flexibility, more control. That's a good thing. But what's super interesting is the best agents are already providing that. Yes. Yeah. Right. We could talk for another three hours on this, but the very first mentor I had in real estate taught me, taught me to always get a buyer broker agreement. And in, in Utah with my brokerage, we were required to have a buyer broker agreement in Utah, very standard across the board for 90% of agents. Apparently it's not that way in, in a lot of other States. Okay. You could choose to have a buyer broker agreement with your client, but how I was taught I don't even know why I'm going into this, but I, I feel like it's important to give some context to this topic of giving control right now to consumers, which also will lead to you getting paid more. You yeah. both can be true. So what my mentor taught me is, look, on this buyer broker agreement, your buyer is agreeing to pay you whatever that number is. Let's call it 4%. Your buyer is agreeing to pay you 4%. So then I just had to explain to them, look, you, if you want my help, you are agreeing to pay me 4%. However, if we go to this listing and they're offering 4%, that covers it. If we go to a listing that's offering 3% or 1% or nothing, you still have to pay the 4% out of your pocket. So now when there's listings that you want to see, I'm going to let you know what they're offering. And then you can decide what you want to see and what you don't want to see. And I started doing this with clients and they felt so damn empowered. And sometimes they're like, my number was not 4%. It was less, but there were a couple houses with where they have to come out of pocket for some of what they agreed to upfront with me. And I gave them the option. I was like, do you want to see it? Sometimes they said, yes. Sometimes they said, no, they were never upset. And there were a couple of times where they still chose to go see a house that was offering less than what I was, than what they agreed to pay me. And they paid out of pocket, just like they knew up front. They opted in. I gave them all the information. I gave them all the control, all the choice. They agreed to that scenario. And I think that's the way forward. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. Same, same. We've done, we op we've operated with a buyer broker agreement and under that exact same sort of setup since, since I can remember, since. Uh, for sure since like 2008. When I'm talking to the client about this, I'm not like, I sugarcoat it a little bit. Like I, I put some, some more context on it. Like we're just talking bluntly because we're professionals, but that's it. Like you give them the option. Hey, they agree to pay this. And if they're like, no, I'm not going to, then why would you work with them? Yeah. Then you have I, no guarantee you're going to get a paycheck. Why would you do that? I, I always laugh at agents that like are afraid to, to, to work with a buyer broker. Cause they're like, I'm not going to trap them. I'm like, 
trap them. They're hiring you. <laughs> I, I was just yeah. telling, like, sorry, I just, I don't work without an employment contract because it's, I, because I have other clients that I could work for them. So yeah. why would I spend time with you if you're not employing me contractually? Yeah. I'll be loyal to you. I will work for you as long as you are loyal to me and follow the contract that you and I sign. Yeah. I'm going to. It's not that hard. And some agents need to do a much better job of selling the buyer broker agreement and how it's good for both parties. I've found, and this could be my belief because maybe I'm out of touch. The people that don't, it's because they're afraid. Yes. And they're afraid to present it because they don't actually believe it. Themselves. They don't even believe what they're doing is valuable to the consumer. Agreed. And or they're afraid that they're not good enough on how to present what they do that is valuable to the consumer to get the consumer to do it. So to me, it's like it is a skill set. It's just yeah. a skill set that people are missing. That's really not that hard. Just got to work on it. Again, go back to the four principle or the three principles of success in real estate. Got to say the right things. That's it. You got you to know what to say. All right, dude. We've well, gone well said. We've gone long. I got to run. Anything else before we wrap that we missed that we got to make sure we cover? No, man. But I think we could talk for another two hours, but let's not. Yeah. I think this is good for today. I'm going to let you finish your fast without me. And uh, <laughs> fair enough. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch, touch base again soon, dude. Awesome. Always All good right. to talk to you, Kevin. Dude, brother. Take it easy. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're looking for even more valuable content and resources to help you grow your business, then we invite you to join our community, Next Level Agents at eXp Realty. By joining us, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits like live trainings, events, masterminds, weekly Zooms, digital downloads, and so much more, all designed to help you grow your business. To learn more and become a part of our community, simply visit kevinandfred.com forward slash contact and get in touch with us today. Of course, if you're not quite ready to take the plunge and join our community, that's no problem at all. You can still access all of our great content for free right here on this podcast. And again, we thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing to bring you valuable insights and more advice in the future.